Please join together in verse one of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let the words of my mind and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my God, and my Redeemer. As I go through the sermon today, I'd like you to keep a couple thoughts in mind. From Ephesians, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And from our psalm, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Does anyone really, truly know who they are? I propose that we do not. The world believes that we are the sum of our actions, our failures, our our successes, and our attitudes, but that is really not the biblical testimony. It's not even close. We are all blind to ourselves in varying degrees, We're incapable of seeing our own blind spots, or they wouldn't be blind spots. We have also become very comfortable with our unique distortions and the lies we have accumulated over the years, and many of them have become more like comfortable clothes than lies from the enemy. We do not really see ourselves as we are, and that is the nature of deception. In spite of these challenges, seeing ourselves as God sees us is a barometer of our maturity and requires a certain God's sight. We need his clarity to know how to operate in a true sense of reality. The truth is, God knows our story better than we know our own. He also knows our stories can be distorted by our own misunderstanding and the lies we have come to believe about ourselves, each other, and those around us. He wants to restore us so that those lies no longer drive our lives. He is waiting up for us to give up our woefully poor and biblically inadequate view of ourselves and others and depend on him for our understanding. That is not to say that viewing ourselves as God is easy. For some, it can seem almost impossible. Many of us are hyper-aware of the shortcomings and the brokenness in our own stories. To use this metaphor, we will never be able to roll hard enough find our way through these challenges. We need to align our sails with the power of the Holy Spirit because sometimes the waters can get quite rough. But let's not forget that we have an accuser who slumbers not in our sleeps, eager to help us maintain the status quo and our desire not to upset the delicate equilibrium our opinions and personal narratives have been committed to. The enemy's mission is to keep you deceived, guilt-ridden, and full of doubt. To keep you fearful 
of the disorientation of letting God tell you the truth about you and the work it will take to rebuild your narrative after you receive the gift of truth. But that is the truth that will set you free. God has not designed you to have a question mark looming over your heart. It is the enemy who wants you to question your worth, tear yourself down, and keep your healing at a safe distance. I'm going to share a few real-life examples of people who have struggled with image and self-worth. When I was nine years old, I was assaulted by my uncle. It happened repeatedly over the course of a year. He was six years older than I was. I loved him and I looked up to him. He was a good musician and he was very cool. <laughs> I was excited that he was willing to hang around with me, but I was also confused and embarrassed. I was ashamed to tell anyone what had happened to me, and it turned out later that one of my uncle's brothers also assaulted my sister. Neither of us knew the other story until much later. I've often wondered if my silence made her more vulnerable. It only added to my guilt and shame. The effects on us were a disaster. My sister and I both questioned our self-worth and compensated for our pain in very different ways that eventually put a very deep wedge into our family. I became the classic overachiever, strong, independent, never asking for help, and always wanting to prove that I was capable in any situation. Nearly everything I did was to impress and hide the fact that I felt terribly insecure. For decades, my mind was flooded with fear and shame, and I hid it with bravado and not letting anyone get too close to me. I had a lot of friends, but it's because I was a real people pleaser. I was afraid I could never be myself. Surely if they knew who I really was or what had happened to me, they would despise me, or even worse yet, they'd laugh at me. The voice on my shoulder said over and over, you're a fraud and you will be found out. The success that you are experiencing is temporary. It's a house of guard, cards, and it's all going to come crashing down. For my sister, her assault led her down a path of self-destruction that continues to this day. She became the family scapegoat while I was becoming the golden boy. My sister, by far the smartest of our siblings, went from straight A's in school to nearly failing the eighth grade the year after her assault. In that same time, she was the only seventh grader in the Wisconsin State Honors Orchestra. She was a budding musician and a scholar. I was terrified of failing while she seemed determined to undermine her potential at every turn. I went through high school on honor roll, was a vestry member at my church at 16. I was in a national championship drum and bugle corps. I placed in a national solo competition at the age of 15 against college uh, players much older than me. I married my high school sweetheart, and then I went on to college while my sister slumped through high school in a drug-induced stupor. I cared for my wife and family, and she neglected her daughter. I started two successful companies while she could hardly hold a job. Even while I helped prison inmates find their way back into society, my sister sat in a Florida state penitentiary. The most striking difference between us is that I became obsessed with pleasing God, trying to hide my shame and fear by working my tail off and being responsible. My sister, however, was angry with God for letting bad things happen to her. She felt abandoned and ashamed 
and yet in some ways we were the same for most of our lives. Neither one of us knew how God saw us, and neither of us knew how to ask. Truth is, like Adam and Eve, in our own ways, we were both hiding our shame from God. I had another inadvertent advantage. As I began to work with those who were returning from prison, I began to see a pattern. I began to see how shame, hopelessness, and self-loathing drives people away from relationship with God and with others and blinds them from whom God called them to be. I began to see that this was one of the main barriers to seeing with the eyes of God. They were trapped in their shame-based view of how God saw them, and it kept them from the healing and restoration that God so desperately wanted to share. At RVM, I worked with a man named Greg. He had served 14 years for manslaughter. His mother was a minister and well-known in town for her work with the poor. When I met him, he was very glad to be out of prison and was living with his mother at the mission that she operated. He was active in Christian service, and he was doing a pretty good job at staying out of trouble. One day, Greg came in, and he just he looked terrible. We got through most of the appointment talking about the usual things, his job, his relationship with his parole agent, how things were going at the mission. Finally, I just couldn't stand it. I said, Greg, you look awful. What's going on? He said, I'm not sleeping. Every time I close my eyes, I see the face of the man I murdered. I see him laying there, taking his last breath. His eyes are still open. I'm sweating, my heart is pounding, and I'm up for hours, afraid to close my eyes again. So I just stay awake until I pass out. It's getting real bad again. Although he's paid his debt to society, he just could not forgive himself or erase the image of this dying man from his shame-ridden memories. This kind of pain can haunt soldiers as well. I said to Greg, you know you have a patron saint who fully understands your predicament. He gave me a confused look and I answered him. I said, you know Paul killed Christians, right? He looked at me in disbelief. See, he knew his Bible. Growing up with a missionary preacher, he, he knew the truth, yet this truth was lost in him. He had known the story, but he had completely failed to appropriate its implications for himself. I told him, God not only forgave Paul, but he used him mightily. Over time, Greg began to sleep better, and eventually he was able to forgive himself with the confidence that God could use a murderer for his high and mighty purposes. Part of his image was beginning to be restored. He began to really believe that he was a child of God. He began to see that a murder is what he had done, but it was not who he is. Here's the point. It started with a word from God to me. It was confirmed in the testimony of Scripture. It was processed by Greg. The revealed truth was nurtured for weeks for allow, to allow it to take root. These paradigm shifts take care and commitment to change. It takes grit and stamina to stay with the process. I want to be very, very clear here. This was not a new piece of information. It was a word from God that led to a critical and deep layer of healing. He was transformed from someone who heard the word to someone who was healed and restored by it. God does not want to give us new pieces of information. He wants to change our hearts, to heal our wounds, and to make our hearts more like his.
Rebecca talked last week about the deceptions and lies we hear and tell ourselves. They can wreak havoc on our spiritual lives and those around us. One of the greatest deceptions is that we are the sum total of our actions, inactions, our wounds, and our accomplishments. This is the world's lie, not the gospel truth. Believing lies about ourselves and others may be the most destructive elements in families and communities. So very many of us are completely stuck here. I would like to reinforce what Rebecca said last week and ask you to continue to go to God and ask him, what lies have I subjected myself to? What lies have I subjected others to? I'm going to remind you, too, that the Scripture teaches you need to be careful how you label yourself and others. Jesus warns in Matthew, anyone who says you fool will be judged, uh, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And I always wondered why. It sounded very harsh to me. It's because we are not the judge. We do not get to define people. And really, it's very important to remember, we don't even get to define ourselves. This is critical to our own understanding. And it is countercultural. God is the only one who knows their story, and he's the only one who knows ours. What are the lies that are keeping us from hearing God and opening us up to the relationship he so desires to have with us? You can only fully know yourself when God, in his grace, reveals it to you. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I make known to you. In Ephesians, we hear, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. I sometimes wonder, saved from what? Lies, deceit, distortions, lingering wounds, broken relationships, broken hearts, and the weight of life's challenges. I'm still working to learn this, began to learn this, and I hope that one day my sister, my sister will learn this for herself. What have we learned in the last few weeks? We have learned that God is relational, God speaks, God mentors, God heals, that grace is a means for transformation, that grace is what God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. We have learned about some of the barriers to what God wants for us. We have learned specifically that the devil lies. Big surprise. We also have learned that he may be the originator of some of our distorted thoughts that we hold very dear and that those thoughts can actually inhibit us from a healing God wants for us. In considering our, our identity, we generally ask the question, who am I? In the disorientation of our suspect behavior, our deep insecurities, and our profound wonderments, this is the question we usually ask. This question, if improperly framed, can take us even deeper down the rabbit hole of confusion and deception. We have experienced profound life crises like prison, addiction, sexual assault, abuse, PTSD, divorce, a painful termination from a job, or a disorienting mental illness, we may be tempted to ask again, who am I? And see it through the lens of our wounds and our wonderments. Let me be clear, this is the devil's playground. Building an understanding of who you are on the sandy foundation of your own cognitive understanding is folly. 
is folly. Knowing who you are is not a cognitive exercise or a survey of your closest friends, in spite of how many times the world affirms this over and over. Knowing who you are is a gift from God. Say that again. Knowing who you are is a gift from God. It may be one of the most precious gifts God can give you. I propose that the more fundamental question is who is God? Our self-worth, our identity is tied much more closely to the second question than the first. And the answer to the first question can barely be framed by our distorted faculties without a grounding rooted in an assurance of God's loving character and his creative purposes. So who is God? I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute and just listen. We say each week that the maker of heaven and earth, that God is the maker of... I'll start that again. We say each week that God is the maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. I am the Lord who heals you. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. I am merciful. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. I, yes, I, am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans who wither like the grass and disappear? I am the bread that gives life. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will have life even if they die. I am the one who lives. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. The one who is sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this, because these words are true and trusted. He also says what he will do. I am with you even unto the end of the age. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. I will not leave you comfortless. In, the day that, in, the, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. My peace I give to you. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Go ahead and open your eyes. Wow. In Exodus we hear, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. Jesus then reaffirms this in chapter 6 when he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those who he has given me. Do you believe this? Deep in your gut, you honestly say that your life is grounded in this truth. 
If not, I challenge you to make some space in your life to hear God's words about you. Imagine what your life would be like if the Holy Spirit could make these scriptures come alive to our souls. Imagine the capacity for joy and peace that would be possible. Imagine the strength and courage for mission if you believe this. Imagine how this could empower and inform our daily life in our mission to create pathways to love, hope, and healing. I want to make something perfectly clear. Our image is not healed by an intellectual assent to the ideals of scriptural principles. Principles do not transform our heart. Our identity is healed by God himself, and no work we can do on our own can complete this work. It is a work done only by God, and it is done by hearing his voice. He says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Imagine how our theology could change if we stopped thinking that the main benefit of going to church and doing ministry and following the Ten Commandments was to get into heaven. Imagine for a moment that God's real desire is for a deep and personal relationship that begins right now. A real conversational relationship, not some intellectual platitude that leaves us wanting more. He wants us to know that we are living in eternity now in a life-giving relationship that feeds, heals, and restores every day. Imagine what it would be like to know that God's love can give comfort now, not in some weird, unscriptural delay that will magically, uh, magically be healed sometime in the future after we die, if we have done enough of the right stuff to win the prize. Life is not a test. It's a gift. Our life is not some kind of ninja obstacle course that we have to complete in order to get the grand prize. I do not believe that God wants us to live in an arrangement of delayed gratification that magically allows us to get into heaven in spite of ourselves. I do not believe that Jesus is an advocate between us and an angry father who needs constant appeasement because of our foibles. That is completely contrary to all of the scriptures we just heard. This is a lie from hell to keep you trapped in your stunted vision and low expectations. I believe that the Bible teaches that God wants to restore the relationship broken in Eden right now, that we may be free to live as people of the promise. There's another truth that must be acknowledged. Our identity needs to be restored over and over again. It's not, it's not a one and done. The challenges of life are a constant reminder of our inability to stay where God wants us. To really live as if we know what God has created. We see this in life, the life of the apostles who saw miracles, signs, wonders, heard from Jesus himself, and still were confused by his mission. Were scattered at the crucifixion and even denied knowing him. Life can be hard. Truth be told, knowing God does not make life easier. That is actually another lie. God does not promise anywhere that life will be free of pain. He promises to be with us through it and in it. So as our true identity takes a beating and looks unrecognizable to the world and maybe even to us, we need to have the Father's reassurance that we are what he says we are and that he still sees us through the eyes of love. Isn't this what every good parent and grandparent does with their family and their children? It's natural. It's wired right into us, and we miss it. 
when failure and difficulty are present, we are there to encourage and assure our children and our grandchildren that their failure is not their identity, to reassure them that there's a fundamental difference between what they do and who they are. Paul and Peter were living billboards for this truth. We need grace to live in a restored relationship to God. We need real healing. Jesus died not that we could get into heaven, but that the fracture in our relationship caused by sin would no longer stand in the way of the relationship he intended from the beginning. The testimony of the Bible is that in spite of our imperfections, God loves and cherishes us enough to want to be with us. What if the real problem is our distorted view of God that leads to the fractured relationship? Is it possible that in the cross, God already fixed it and we just can't believe it? This grace is modeled in the story of the prodigal son. A few weeks ago, Father Steve shared some of the Jewish cultural perspective about the tremendous disrespect displayed by the son who wanted his inheritance right now. Let's revisit the prodigal for a bit. The story helps us to feel the shame of the prodigals eating with the pigs. For Jews, that was horrific. Having disrespected his father in a profoundly arrogant manner, the son came back dirty, stinky, ritually unclean, spiritually broken, and bereft of the resources that would secure his life after his father passed. In fact, he comes kind of slinking back to the father. Is it possible that one of the real truths of the prodigal is what happens when we separate ourselves from a relationship with the father? That in doing so, we lose our identity as one loved, protected, blessed by this life-giving relationship? Is it possible that we become so abstractly familiar with the narrative that we no longer appreciate the real security and joy of actually being with the Father and being beneficiaries of his real presence? Actually, I think this whole story is a setup. Jesus was good at this. A setup to what? To a proclamation of the true nature of our identity and God's central part in how that identity identity can be revealed and restored by simply coming to him. And I do mean simply. That was not a word chosen easily. Even though the son had prepared his speech, hoping to convey his repentance and his remorse and leverage his father's forgiveness in order to abate his anger, well, I've heard that theology before, He was hoping against hope that his father would take him back, even if it was in a pseudo-identity as a hired servant and no longer as a son. He was prepared to settle for less by offering to forgo any hope of familiar restoration beyond just putting him to work. Let's review the father's response. The son came back in a state of true contrition. I I think the son really gets it at this point. The father saw him at a distance. Jesus says he ran to him and had compassion. The son must have looked awful. He must have smelled awful. But instead of being repulsed by his smell and his former disrespect, he hugs him and he kisses him. Our distorted theology of an angry God ready to punish our bad behavior is in stark contrast to the values Jesus shares of fatherly care and restoration, which are the hallmarks of a covenantal relationship and a God who for our salvation that we might be whole. <clears throat> Let me share what might, be ha- might have happened in my house. My military dad would have stood at the top of that hill. I would have felt every humiliating step 
coming back to the estate under his watchful eye, dreading his first words upon my arrival. My father might have summarized the events by saying, you dummy, you demand your money before it's really yours and then you blow it all? You've embarrassed yourself, disrespected your family and your God by eating with pigs. You actually did reap the rewards of your foolish, selfish, disrespectful choices. You got what you deserved. Might have paused and said, well, all right, come on. You are my son. I'll take you back. But I want you to consider your brother, who has continued to work, carrying out his load, doing what was expected and not squandering his money. I need you to think about what you did. Go to the house, clean up. I'm giving a party for your brother and for his friends. And when you learn to respect me and act more responsible, maybe, just maybe, I'll give you a party too. Now go on, get cleaned up, and try not to embarrass us any more than you already have. That's what I might have heard. In many ways, this would be acceptable in the world of literature. This is a narrative that could even end by the storyteller saying, As the years passed and the son proved himself worthy to his father, through hard work and a commitment to not bringing more shame on his father's household, he was gradually restored to a trusted position in the family. He learned his lesson, and over time he gradually forgot the terrible shame he felt. For as we know, time heals all wounds. Eventually, everyone forgot what had happened so many years ago and they all lived happily ever after. I'm not sure I have enough time. Actually, I am sure I don't have enough time (laughs) to unpack how much this kind of ending is at odds with the gospel, but how much we kind of accept this kind of thought process. If you read that to anybody out in the street, they would go, yeah, it seems okay to me. That's not how God behaves. These may be seen as universal truths, but they're lies from the enemy. They may be universal themes, but they are not universal truths. I'm very happy to report that this parable is not about my home or some ancient fable. It is Jesus, the Son of God, proclaiming the true nature of the Father and how the kingdom of God is not based on the world's understanding, but his alone. So what does Jesus say the Father did? The father ran to him as soon as he saw him, mercifully reducing the time that the son had to wonder what the father really thought. He did not want him to wonder any longer than necessary. When the father reaches him, he hugs him and kisses him. The son is unclean, ashamed, dejected, and into the dark as to his standing in his father's house. In spite of this, he lavishes him with love immediately restoring part of his identity by leading with his unconditional love. It is not unlike when the Lord says to Joshua, today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. God could have said to the Jewish people, you did some foolish things that upset me, and I punished you by sending you to Egypt. I hope you learned your lesson. No, he removes the disgrace and continues fulfilling the promise. That is our God. Grace is what God does joyfully in us and for us that we are unable to do for ourselves. The father in this contest could have been saying, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is put away. Happy are they whom the father imputes no guilt, in whose spirit there is no guile. 
The truth is that the true sacrifice to God is a broken spirit. The scripture teaches that God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. He sees the heart. The words are not even as important as the son's true and deep remorse. It may even be more important, his desire to be restored. The father removes the disgrace. This is not something we can do ourselves. His desire is to remove the disgrace, not to ask us to wallow in it until we can barely stand it so that we bury it deep in our subconscious where it acts like a quiet, toxic poison fueling dysfunctions that have come, we've come to embrace as realities for our lives. God wants to heal these. He wants to heal these. Is this maybe what the father really taught about the prodigal? In that moment, do you think the son had any doubts about the father's feelings toward him? I, I bet he did. This is not at all what he expected. After a short rehearsed confession, the father again surprises, get fine clothes, get a gold ring. The son was probably shocked by this display of love, but I bet he was beginning to get less confused about his father's intentions. His fears must have melted away as his father continued to to express his love by offering a party and the fatty calf in spite of his indiscretions and insults. I know what some of you might be thinking, this can't be the whole story. It sounds too pie in the sky. There are a bunch of scriptures about God being angry and ready to punish. I would challenge you to look at them. Nearly all of these scriptures are about those who rejected God, those who willfully ignored his word, those who turned away. Even in some circumstances, like the prodigal Jonah and like Peter, when they turn back to the Father, he immediately restores them to their place and their true identity. Jesus said reassuringly, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. By virtue of being made in his image, being knit together in the womb, being restored by the waters of baptism, by the open invitation to the Eucharistic feast, and by the testimony of Scripture, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We need to purge out the lies and live as if what God says is true. We need to be humble enough to hear the truth from our own brothers and sisters and not be driven to debilitating shame and defensiveness, but be encouraged to good works and to seek the renewing of our minds. We need to be reminded every day what God says about us. We need to be convinced that his opinion is the one that matters most. We need to seek God's visions for those around us and to be a community that seeks God for our truth. We need to give thanks that he has written the law in our hearts and pray that he will give us wisdom and courage to follow his path for us, not our distorted second best that we offer in shame to God knowing that we have blown and that we deserve less than God's best. He is standing at the door and waiting to open it. Are you ready to open it and let him in? Are you ready for this Holy Spirit to illuminate your path? Are you ready to seek the community's discernment for the words that you were here? Are you ready for God to lead? Let me be as clear as I can. That can only be done with God by hearing his voice. Jesus states that the sheep know his voice. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You will only be well to the degree that you know what God says about you, to the degree that you are found in him, and to the degree that you know that you know this deep in your heart. I pray that we may be able to live as though this is true. 
I pray that in whatever ways you are blind to this truth, that the veil will be removed and that you may know that you are the apple of God's eye, loved as a child with no distorted, shame-based focus, that you will know in spirit and truth that he will lead you to a place where your image will be fully restored in the knowledge that you are his children and that his primary orientation toward you is love, forgiveness, and restoration, not punishment and judgment. Wait patiently for the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, Jim, would you just stay here for a moment? It's okay. I want to um, see, I just have a sense from the Lord that we can pray and do a couple of things here. Um, thank you so much for that word. It was a beautiful word. And uh, just as you were praying a moment ago about being the apple of his eye, I think so many of us just don't believe that, right? It's at a heart, it's at a heart level that the, the problem is. And we can't receive every single truth that the Lord wants to tell us r right now, because I think that's something he's going to do over the next several weeks. But one thing I really believe that he wants us to enter into right now is a rejection of the lie. And that's one thing I think that he can lead us in as we come to our confession. So I'm going to actually reverse our order a little bit. I'm going to lead us into a prayer and then the confession, and then we'll sing Amazing Grace again, and then we'll do the creed. I'll lead you all through that. But um, why don't you just pray with me and then we'll kneel together. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for our brother who has brought us the words of truth that, that begin to unlock the chains that trap us and open up the doors of the prisons. But Lord, we especially ask you this morning that you would rebuke the enemy who was our accuser that you would now silence the voices in our own minds that are telling us that we are blameworthy, that we are not worth staying with, that we are bad at some level, we're too fat, we're stupid. Actually, we're sick because we deserve to be sick. These are all lies of the enemy. These are false identities. These are forms of self-rejection. Lord, we want to come into how you see us, but these things are there, and I pray that you would silence the voice of the enemy now, and that in our hearts there would be a sanctuary. Lord, I thank you that you came to that prodigal son in that place, and the first thing you did in him is he, he remembered just enough to know that he is not meant to be part of the pig sty. And he renounced that, and he left it, and so we just ask that you would work in our hearts, that we would come back at some level to the grace that we have because we are your favorite son. We are your favorite daughter. You're so pleased with us. And we want to see that, want to receive that so that we can then see you, that we can enjoy you as you run to us the moment we turn to you. And so, Lord, I, uh, we thank you for the truth of the grace of our baptisms. This whole time is meant for us to return to the reality of who we are, the reality of who you are. If you just pray after me as I make this prayer, um, I actually think we would, it has to be a renunciation that because of his grace, we can make this renunciation and begin to open up our ears to hear truth instead of lies. So Lord Jesus, 
Say after me, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. In your holy name, we renounce the sin of self-hatred. We renounce the sin of self-hatred. We renounce the sin of self-rejection. We renounce the slander of the enemy. We renounce the slander of the enemy. Who would say we are not your own children? Who would say we are not your own children? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that with this you can begin to renew our identity as your children. So please kneel with me as we make our confession before the altar. And let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, Pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear what the word of God says to all who truly turn to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the covering for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us sing again, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves Oh. 